0: The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to Listener Supported Community Radio KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Welcome to Food Sleuth Radio where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food Health and Agriculture and Find Food Truth. And I'm delighted to bring back a wonderful journalist. She was on almost exactly two years ago, Maren McKenna. She is an independent journalist and author who specializes in public health, global health and food policy. She is a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University. She is a blogger for Wired. She is a columnist and contributing editor for Scientific American. She is a regular contributor to the Annals of Emergency Medicine. She is the author of Superbug: The Fatal Menace of MRSA or Methicillin-Resistant Staphylococcus Aureus and that was the topic of our conversation two years ago. Today, we are going to talk about a recently published piece that Marin wrote connecting chicken with urinary tract infections. Marin, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: It's my pleasure. This is such an important issue. You know, I, I was reading some of the statistics about antibiotic resistant infections and the way we produce our food. We don't typically connect the dots between antibiotic-resistant infections, which seem to be on the rise, and the food we eat. How are they connected?
1: You know, it's exactly right what you say, that we don't connect that. And it's been kind of a battle to convince people of the connection. And this is one of the things we talked about when I was on two years ago is that there's a connection between the antibiotic-resistant bacterium MRSA or MRSA and food through a particular strain of MRSA that showed up in pigs in the Netherlands in 2004 and now has really spread across the world. It's been found throughout Europe and in Canada and in the United States, not just in pigs, but also in people and traveling on retail food. Mm -hmm. That, That... sort of case of a connection between antibiotic-resistant bacteria and food is kind of a small case. There haven't been that many instances that anyone has seen, granted nobody's really counting. And so it's been hard to convince people that food is a big player in this, and that's why This new investigation, which I conducted with the help of the Food and Environment Reporting Network, and and which was published simultaneously by the Atlantic Magazine's website and by ABC News, that's why this is so important, because it talks about an incredibly common food, the protein that we eat in the United States more than any other chicken, and an incredibly common infection. Yeah. Urinary tract infections happen in the United States to six to eight million people a year and cost probably a billion dollars in healthcare spending. And an increasing number of them are antibiotic resistant. And it looks like that resistance tracks back to the farm.
0: And you know what's so interesting is you state early on in this article that there is no national registry for drug resistant infections. How can that be? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, this is
1: something that people who track this uh, have been pushing for for a while, and I have to say I have as well. That was one of my big conclusions when I wrote Superbug was we're never going to get a handle on this unless we at least do a better job of counting it. Now, since then, a few things have changed. There are a few instances now where the federal government, through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, keeps an eye on certain infections that occur in hospitals and are caused by antibiotic-resistant infections. But they're counting them because they occur in hospitals, not particularly because they're antibiotic-resistant. To this day, no one is counting what kind of antibiotic-resistant infections happen out in the everyday world, which is just what medicine calls the community with quote marks around it. Mm -hmm. There are ways that you could do that. Uh, It's not easy to do in a kind of patchwork retail system like ours, but it might be possible. It's certainly possible in Europe where they have single-payer, single-track healthcare systems. Since we don't count them, we have a very hard time telling where the trends are going and what's emerging. And I think that's why we got caught by surprise By this new connection between chicken and UTIs.
0: Now, you spoke to a researcher at McGill University in Canada, and what did she tell you?
1: It's really interesting. You know, everyone has been noticing for a while—just people who do kind of everyday medicine—that antibiotic resistance in urinary tract infections has been rising. It's been rising to such a degree that just last year the Professional Society for Infectious Disease Physicians, which is called the IDSA, actually put out new guidance for physicians saying, you know, resistance is at such a state that we can't give you a blanket recommendation anymore for what drug you should use. If you have a patient with a urinary tract infection, you're going to have to test them, see if the bug is resistant, and then figure it out. We're just warning you that right now. So... What Dr. Mongus, this professor in Canada, noticed was that there's a particular signature in these bacteria that we can track back pretty clearly to particular forms of bacteria that infect chickens in particular, though other livestock animals as well, and that bear a signature of particular resistances. This is trickier than it sounds, and the reason is because The bug that primarily causes urinary tract infections is E. coli, which I think everybody has heard of. Mm -hmm. What most people don't appreciate is that E. coli is an enormous group of bacteria, and different subdivisions within it do different things. E. coli, in one form or another, exists in the guts of every warm-blooded being, and in fish and reptiles and other cold-blooded beings as well. So it's all over the place. So... Looking for the particular E. coli that were within the guts of chicken, were migrating to chicken meat when the chickens were killed, and then showing up in humans when they handled or ate chicken was a kind of needle in the haystack proposition, but these people managed it.
0: Yeah, that's true. I was reading this and I thought, wow, somebody thought to look at the E. coli in chicken and match that with urinary tract infection bacteria. That was quite a miracle in its own right. And when you say signature, what we're talking about is that we're looking at the genetic signature. Is that right? That's right. So within
1: this enormous family of E. coli, there's a particular grouping that goes by the acronym, more or less. It's EXPEC, E-X-P-E-C. And what that stands for is Extra Intestinal Pathogenic E. coli. Pathogenic means it causes disease. Extraintestinal means just what it sounds like. E. coli normally lives in the gut, and somehow these particular strains get out of the gut and cause disease elsewhere in the body. And what they usually do is that somehow... They get into the urinary tract. For women in particular, you can see how that works because our urinary tracts and, and the end of our intestinal tracts are so close together. Mm-hmm. The thing about urinary tract infections is that they have this tendency to not stay in the urinary tract, in the bladder, but to kind of climb backwards up to the kidneys. Now, the kidneys are the organ that filter the blood. So once you have something in your kidneys, it's very easy for it to, it to get into the bloodstream and cause a whole body bloodstream infection, what we'd normally call blood poisoning. Mm -hmm. That happens about 40,000 times a year in the United States, and an increasing number of them have been antibiotic-resistant and resistant in particular manners that these researchers feel quite confident now can be traced back to farm antibiotic use.
0: Mm -hmm. I think we have to be really clear, too. You know, whenever I hear the word E. coli, whenever I hear that bacteria... My response is always to think of fecal material, excrement. And so when you think about women, pretty much, I don't know if I could say what percentage of the cases this occurs with, but frequently it's after sex. Somebody has said, you know, you could ride your bike and have dirty underwear and just have a sweaty environment where the bacteria can travel to the urinary tract. So that's how generally women Get urinary tract infections. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, that's right. And the reason why women are so much more vulnerable is just the simple anatomy that, for women, the the end of the intestinal tract and the end of the urinary tract are pretty close together. Exactly. There's not a lot of distance to travel there. It's different for men. I'm, I'm not suggesting that men don't get urinary tract infections because, of course, they do. Mm-hmm. But The the reason why, overwhelmingly, the the vast majority of people who get those urinary tract infections, certainly in the U.S. and around the world every year, is women, is because of just simple anatomy.
0: Simple physiology. Okay. So we purchased chicken, and uh, I was doing a little research before the interview, and I was looking to see, well, how many chickens are raised together in some of these big confinement facilities? And I was noticing that in a large CAFO or confined or concentrated animal feeding operation, we would be looking at maybe up to 125,000 birds raised in confinement, close quarters. So they're routinely given antibiotics and the number is a little, it's a little sketchy. So you write that about 80% of the antibiotics sold in the U.S. each year are given to livestock as growth promoters or as prophylactic regimens that protect against these confined conditions. However, that 80% has been disputed, hasn't it? That's right, and it's important to say, because we want to consider all
1: sides of this question, that the folks who are effectively the spokespeople for very large-scale agriculture say that that math is incorrect, that it's not 80%, that it's somewhere in the 20 or 30% of all antibiotics sold in the United States every year. Further, they say that one of those two uses that you just correctly mentioned of growth promotion, which is giving small doses to animals to make them put on weight faster, and also prophylactic regimens, which is giving treatment-sized doses to healthy animals in order to protect them against the conditions in which they're raised, the industry says that growth promoters are really kind of passing out of use. Now, whether they are actually never being used anymore as a result of pressure from the FDA or whether they're being reclassified is another highly disputed topic that we could spend this entire half hour going back and forth on. Mm -hmm. But but it is absolutely correct to say that industry doesn't agree with this. They don't think that as many antibiotics are used as campaigners say are used, and they don't agree either with the effect. They just don't see anywhere near as much of a risk from the use of those antibiotics, and they're skeptical whether these infections are being caused or whether there's an agricultural influence on these infections.
0: Well, if the agricultural industry were to change and not use antibiotics, it would seem to me that they would have to change their whole infrastructure to really accommodate the numbers of animals that we're talking about living in such close proximity. And I wonder if that isn't one of the driving factors in their position of, oh, no, 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 it's not us.
1: Oh, I think you're exactly correct. I think that really what we're talking about here is not a question of science anymore. It's a question of politics and economics. Mm -hmm. The use of antibiotics in a routine manner is really what makes concentrated animal operations possible. Dating back to the 1950s, if we were to say in some sort of federal regulatory way, we're just not going to do that anymore as a country, it would require a wholesale reshaping of that industry. Now, it's possible to do that. Denmark did it. It's not impossible to do, to have a healthy agricultural sector, a healthy sector of producing meat animals without the routine use of antibiotics, but it would certainly require something probably is on as large a scale as dismantling the tobacco industry did.
0: Mm-hmm. And you
1: can see, if you, know, if you look at it from that point of view, that that's not something that agriculture would be particularly excited about undertaking.
0: Right. And yet there's so much at stake. And I should let our listeners know that I met you originally through the Association of Healthcare Journalists, where you are indeed a rock star in putting together some tremendous panels on this topic And it was actually at a panel that you arranged several years ago in Orange County, California, the last day, the very last session, and there was a researcher from UCLA who said, and I've never forgotten this, we are moving towards a society that does not have functioning antibiotics. And from a public health perspective, antibiotics were such a huge jump in terms of our public health advancements that to think about losing them because of a segment of our industry that doesn't want to budge perhaps with a profit motive in mind i find that to be despicable
1: i think you're you know what i hear that so often from from people in medicine that we are almost at the far end of the antibiotic era and that is so stunning we've only been in the antibiotic era at, If you count from the very earliest days, which would be probably the day in 1928 when Alexander Fleming accidentally left the window open in his lab and something blew in and contaminated his culture plates and what blew in turned out to be penicillium mold, the original source of penicillin, that was in 1928. So, you know, at most we've had 80-some years. And if you start counting from when salsa drugs came on the market, that was in the 1930s. At any rate, we've had less than 100 years of antibiotics, and I wonder sometimes if we're going to look back and see that there was just this brief shining moment where we kind of held mankind's traditional enemies of infectious diseases at bay, and then we let it go. Mm-hmm. We, we, we've forgotten that the things that we now take for granted, things like, a, like blood poisoning, things like a urinary tract infection, things like a surgical infection, used to kill people. The first people who received penicillin, they, 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 the doctors who gave it to them thought that the effect was miraculous because they recovered in 48 hours from things that were supposed to be a death sentence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the question of how is it that agriculture continues to perpetuate this? You know, I, I mean, to be fair to agriculture, they have a very particular job. <laughs> their mm-hmm. job, which we have, have given them and supported by buying their products, is to produce protein and we're talking here, you know, about meat. Produce production is a separate question. To reduce protein efficiently and quickly and cheaply. Antibiotics make that possible. If the costs of using antibiotics in meat production are all external to agriculture, I mean, maybe someone who works in agriculture gets an antibiotic-resistant infection. That's probably not unusual. But it's not directly impacting their bottom line. It has a much broader and more diffuse social effect in making infections harder to cure, in making certain kinds of surgeries more difficult, in all kinds of things that really don't directly track back to the farm. Mm -hmm. When we turn around to agriculture and we say, you know, you're creating all these social effects, it's not something that's within their economic equation. Mm -hmm. And so we have to find a way to bring those externalities back to agriculture before we start asking them to make changes based on the things that we are perceiving outside the agricultural envelope that we need
0: that makes It's a tremendous amount of sense. We have to let our listeners know if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Marin McKenna. She is an independent journalist and author. She specializes in public health, global health, food policy. She is the author of Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA. She is most recently a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University. And she has written a tremendous article that deserves all of our attention. It was published in The Atlantic. It's titled, How Your Chicken Dinner is Creating a Drug-Resistant Superbug, and it has to do with the way in which we raise our chickens, we feed them antibiotics routinely, and lo and behold, a particular strain of antibiotic-resistant E. coli that has been found in chickens has also been found to be the demon in preventing women's urinary tract infections from being cured with routine antibiotics. Let's talk just briefly about The connection between the chicken that we eat passes through our gut, comes out in our feces, and that's how we get exposed to this resistant strain of E. coli. But it's not just chicken, right? You mentioned hogs earlier with MRSA. We bring chicken and raw meat into our kitchens, and we can cross-contaminate other foods with raw meat drippings. Is there anything else you want to talk about with regard to the connection between the food we eat and the diseases that we get?
1: What I think people need to understand is that this isn't actually that complicated. Right. <laughs> and because it's not that complicated, it, it's easy for it to happen a lot. Basically what happens is, you know, we give animals antibiotics. We, generally speaking, we, because there are so many animals, whether it's cows or pigs or chickens or turkeys, on a meat-producing farm that they don't administer the antibiotics individually. They don't go into a farm and shove pills down the throats of 20,000 chickens in a barn. What they do is they give the antibiotics either in food or in water, primarily in feed. So the animals take it in as part of their feed. It accompanies the feed through their gastrointestinal systems, gets digested. Some of the antibiotics do their thing. They break down, their, and their active ingredients uh, work on bacteria and this is in the whatever disease bacteria there might be, and some just pass out in their manure. What, oh, and then what happens is any time you apply antibiotics to any bacteria, whether they're in a chicken's gut or somewhere else, you're creating a sort of Darwinian battleground in which the weakest ones will die first, and the strongest ones, the ones that just through evolution and natural selection have the mutations that protect them against the antibiotics, They hang on longer. That's why if you have an infection as a human being, you're told to take the full length of a prescription. It's because you want to be sure you're taking the prescription long enough to kill even the very last survivors, the toughest ones. But when we're giving animals less than full strength, caring for disease, doses of antibiotics, we set up a system in which only the weak ones die, but the strong ones, the ones that are naturally, that have become resistant, survive. So then those resistant bacteria are present in the animal's gut. Then we send the animals to slaughter. They undergo the process of slaughter that makes that turns them from animals into meat. And the contents of their guts, as the guts are taken out of the bodies, as the bodies are broken down, gets bird feces, cow feces, pig feces all over the meat. That's not uncommon. It's not an unusual thing. Now, we rely on slaughter to get the meat rinsed off to make sure that it's clean before it gets out to the retail level. But there's always a little bit that slips through. If the animal had resistant bacteria in its gut, then its resistant bacteria that's going with the meat out to the retail level. So we bring we buy it, we bring it into our homes. Maybe we handle it with less than perfect cleanliness in our kitchens and We contaminate our kitchens or we contaminate our hands or we contaminate surfaces or utensils. Maybe we don't cook it until it's an absolute board so that, therefore, maybe a few of the bacteria survive. Then it goes with the meat into our guts when we eat it and takes up residence in our guts because it's a gut bacterium. And at a certain point, then, it escapes our guts out the other end and gets into our urinary systems and creates that UTI that we started talking about.
0: I think what happens when someone reads an article that you've written, they would feel some level of outrage. I certainly did. You know, we've got so many women experiencing urinary tract infections. We've got a culprit. We need to take action. Where does the action need to take place? You know, I I read the part of your story, and I've heard – the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy also mentioned that the FDA has been sitting on strong recommendations to get these antibiotics out of our food system, but Congress threatens cuts to their budget. And so now the FDA rolls out this weaker voluntary measure kind of recommendation. And that's not what we need. We need. That's
1: right. The FDA actually has been attempting to take some action about this situation, about the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria as a result of agricultural use since the 1970s. Yes. Yeah. The very first sort of international warning bell about this was in the late 60s, a report from the British government. But it was followed only about three years later, in about 1972, by a report from an FDA panel that FDA asked to look into this, and they said, yes, the British government, the SWAN report, as it's called, was right. We need to do something. Since 1977, the FDA has been trying to essentially revoke its approval for the way in which certain antibiotics are used in agriculture, and it's been persistently stymied by the House of Representatives, by the Senate, by industry pressure, so that, as you say, now where they are is that just about at the turn of last year, they finally came forward and said, you know, this... Formal regulation that we tried to do back in 1977, we're finally taking that attempt off the books. We're not going to attempt to do regulation. We're going to propose instead a voluntary process for industry to follow. Now, if you talk to industry, they say, well, yeah, maybe it's voluntary, but the FDA is making making it very clear to us that they really want us to follow this, and so we're going to. But I have to say there are plenty of people skeptical whether that's actually going to happen or whether voluntary really means that agriculture is not really going to change.
0: So we as listeners, consumers, public health advocates, what is our plan of action? Do we call our representatives? Sometimes I think if we don't have a big check along with our call, maybe our voice isn't as loud as it should be or it might be. Do we contact the industry in particular, and say, do we, you know, set up a consumer boycott and say, you know, if you're not going to raise your chickens without antibiotics, I'm just not going to buy it? You know,
1: it's a really good question, because I think it's absolutely true, as you say, that at this point, sort of in our national history, with our political process, as it is at this moment, that individual people really feel disempowered. It's very hard for people to believe that their actions are going to have an effect So I think there's a couple of things that people can do. The first is, and this may be the most important, is that you have to focus on things that you can do to protect yourself. So that means when you're shopping, you have to take a good look at where things are coming from. When you bring meat into your house, you have to be really careful about how you don't cross-contaminate things and you keep your kitchen clean. I hate to say it as somebody who likes a rare steak, but, you know, it's probably important that we cook meats really thoroughly. One of the reasons why this, you know, I, I never... I never want to make this the fault of the consumer because I feel like the deck is stacked against them. Mm-hmm. But if we, in fact, cooked every piece of protein until it was as stiff as a board and completely unpalatable, then we would probably kill all the bacteria in it. But, you know, at that point, you wouldn't want to eat the protein anyway. So those are some of the protective things you can do for yourself. That's, and that's the first thing is to make sure you're safe and your family's safe. Once you've got that secured, what do you do to say that you want to change the situation? I think when it comes to food... The only lever that we have that really matters is our dollars. I mean, I think we can, we can apply pressure. You know, people can be activists. People can speak up to their representatives. They can, you know, join the efforts of activist groups. I'm not saying that people should not do that because it's important for your voice to be heard if you object to this. But the thing that made really big, you know, there there were really big companies now that are organic and antibiotic-free, that are offering antibiotic-free meat. And the way that they got so big and so successful is because people voted with their dollars and said, I'm going to support this kind of production. I'm going to pay a dollar more for grass-fed beef or two dollars more for pastured poultry, and I'm going to make sure that these producers are able to survive in the marketplace because I think it's better for my health if they do. So it's into important, you know, class and income questions but it still seems to me something that people should think about.
0: Marin, we're going to have to leave it at that. I want to direct everyone to your excellent article. If you go to theatlantic.com and search for Marin McKenna, that's M-C-K-E-N-N-A, How Your Chicken Dinner is Creating a Drug-Resistant Superbug, you can learn more about this topic. I want to remind our listeners that Maren McKenna is an independent journalist. She is an author who specializes in these kind of topics with regard to public health and antibiotic-resistant bacteria. She is the author of Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you so much, Marin, for your great investigative work and for being my guest today.
1: Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you.